Brian, and good morning, Tri-Cities Church. It's good to see all of you here. Uh, we are continuing our series in John that we've been in since the beginning of the year as we uh, preach through the Gospel of John. Hey, I'm beginning to think about next year uh, and what we will be doing for next year. This year, I, I have I, it has been somewhat of a break for me uh, because typically I'm thinking about what sermon series is coming next or what our church needs to hear next. And um, this year, after we said we were going to plant our feet firmly in the Gospel of John at the beginning of the year and stay there, I haven't had to think about that. Uh, but I am starting to think about that for next year. And, uh, and so even if you have any ideas, now uh, I always am hesitant to ask for ideas on what I should preach because I don't want anybody to be offended if I don't preach that. But if you have ideas or topics that you would like to hear, uh, please feel free uh, to share them as we are in the season of preparing uh, for, uh, for what we will be talking about and preaching about uh, next year. But this year, we're in the Gospel of John. Hey, well, welcome to Tri-Cities Church if this is your first time here. There's uh, uh, cards in the seats in front of you. Uh, that's just one of the ways of connecting here at Tri-Cities. Uh, we just love to know that you are here. Uh, fill out whatever you feel comfortable filling out. If you have a prayer request, please put it on the back. We'd love to be able to join you in prayer. And then after the message, when we share in communion at these four tables around the room, you can drop that card in one of those buckets. And even if you came prepared to give, you can give uh, in one of those four buckets at that time. Well, this week has sure been an interesting week, hasn't it? Uh, I don't know if, if, if you have kids. I know you probably had kids home and scrambling uh, to try to figure out uh, what to do. Uh, as uh, as newer, new parents, I guess we're still new parents, it's been a little bit over a year since we've had a foster child in the house. We are experiencing um, the, uh, the dilemma that parents are going through when children are out of school because of storms. I was in the house and I, uh, I recognized uh, how difficult it is to get any work done with a toddler in the house. I now understand why Jesus didn't have any kids um, because people would have been like, what's he talking about? All right. And he would have been totally unprepared. So this morning we're just going to roll with it and we'll see how that goes. I do have a message uh, for us though from the gospel of John. Well, let's pray and then we'll get into our message this morning. Uh, God, we give you thanks this morning that you give us this opportunity to gather in this place and in this space and to worship you and to declare our love for you. And God, that love is so deep and complex, but that love is real and it's guiding and it's true and it's trustworthy and it plants in our hearts a hope that cannot be robbed by the world. And so, God, as we approach our scripture this morning, and as we read the words of Jesus, as he's speaking to his disciples, as they're walking literally toward the cross, God, I just pray that you will speak to us as well, and that you will help us to hear what you're saying to your church, so that we can know your will for our life in this world where we're called to carry our cross. It's in your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the things that I love about Jesus um, is um, 
he, he tells it like it is, right? Um, he, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, uh, he, he doesn't try to uh, sugarcoat the gospel in order to make uh, discipleship sound easy. In fact, sometimes what we do as people, as readers of Scripture today, is we're tempted to uh, hone in on certain passages that highlight or emphasize the good things or the blessings or the rewards of following Jesus. But whenever we read Jesus' words, right, his actual words that he spoke to his disciples back in biblical times when he was walking with them and living with them, uh, what we recognize is that he never sugarcoats the gospel. He always tells it like it is. He tells the truth. In fact, sometimes I'm like, you know, I read the scripture and I'm going, hold on. I, I thought he was trying to like call people to him. It almost sounds like he's trying to run people away. But the thing that we can trust with Jesus is that he is going to tell us the truth about what it means to follow him. He's going to tell us about the reward and the good things, the blessings and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. But he's also going to tell us about the challenge that there is with following Jesus the hardship that we will encounter. He'll let us know fully that it's no easy street. In fact, he, he, um, he, um, he portrayed that most clearly in the fact that following God's will led him to a cross where he died, suffered, and, and died. And so when we get into scriptures like this, where Jesus says stuff like, the world is going to hate you, one of the things we see is that Jesus is telling the truth to the disciples about the challenges that, they are, that are happening. Now, we've, we've seen in the last couple of weeks um, that, that, um, that uh, this, is, this is happening, all this is kind of unfolding the night before Jesus goes to the cross and is, and is crucified. And things are unfolding rather quickly. Jesus is beginning to explain to the disciples um, what these last moments of his life will look like. And he's kind of unpacking, if you will, the significance of the cross for their lives moving forward. So he's, he's, he's telling them, I'm going to leave you, but not uh, leave you, but not leave you, right? I, I'm physically leaving you. My presence won't be walking with you, but you're going to have my Holy Spirit. And then he's beginning to prepare them for like, what it looks like for them to live by the power of God's Spirit, because that's a little bit more difficult than understanding what it looks like to follow Jesus' physical presence when he's walking with you and saying, hey, do this or do, do that. And so he's beginning to prepare them, and things are unfolding rather quickly, and then he says to them, the world is going to hate you. Look back with me at John chapter 15, where Brian read for us beginning in verse 18. He says, well, it almost sounds like he sugarcoats a little bit at the beginning. If the world hates you... If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. All right? So it's like, if the world hates you, kind of easing in there, right? If they do, if it so happens that the world hates you, well, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. The world hates you, he says to his disciples. And so as I read this scripture, of course, my first question is, what does he mean by the world hates you? Now, he clarifies this a little bit for us in John chapter 16, those uh, verses towards the end of our passage for this morning. In verse 1 and 2, he says, these things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcast from the synagogue. And an hour is coming where everyone who kills you 
to think that they are offering service to God. So he says, number one, this is how the world is going to express, at least he's saying these are the practical implications of the world's hate for Jesus' disciples who he was speaking to in that very moment. He's saying they're going to put you out, they're going to outcast you, put you out of the synagogue. Now for us, we're like, um, we we have a hard time getting that because um, the church, while the church is our community, Um, We do live in a society where a lot of people move from church to church. When a church uh, uh, fails to suit their taste or their preference, they join another church. They go investigating to see what's out there and to try to find another church that will suit their taste or preference. In biblical times, it was not like that. And, and, And I should say that it should not be like that today. Um, uh, uh, God wants us to plug into um, a, a community of faith and go deep in that community of faith where we can learn what it looks like to walk long, stable lives of faith with the same people over a long period of time. They models that in the scriptures uh, and we see that the healthiest churches are churches where that happens. But in biblical times, that, that, this whole idea of like shopping for a church that we're seeing unfolding in our society today just was not a thing. Like you didn't shop for a synagogue. That was your community, right? That was your family. Leaving the synagogue was like leaving your family. It was like being abandoned, being vulnerable. And so he says, when he says, they're going to put you out of the synagogue, that is one of the clearest signs of the world's hate that Jesus is saying. That's going to make your life harder than you could imagine because your community, your ability to even make a living is going to be compromised by being put out of the synagogue. So he says, they're going to they're gonna put you out of the synagogue. And then he says, people are going to kill you and they're going to think that they're offering service to God. And so he's rolling out for them the practical implications of, of the world's hate. He's saying that life for you is going to get real hard. And if you even look at the stories of the 12 disciples, or at least 10 of the 12, uh, what we see is that 10 of the 12 were killed for their faith. Peter, the one who became like the leader in the church, we see him in Acts chapter 2, preaching preaching boldly and continuing the work of Christ as his ministry unfolds. Peter, at least as church history tells us, the Bible doesn't record his death, but at least as church history tells us, he was hung upside down on the cross because he didn't consider himself worthy enough to be hung in the same way that Jesus was. And so when they got ready to nail him to the cross because of his faith, he requested to be hung there upside down. We see with uh, James, another one that was part of Jesus's inner circle that walked with him was close friends with Jesus, was there with him from the beginning of his ministry, was stoned to death. They took large stones and they crushed them with them because of his his faith. We even see John, the author of this gospel that we're reading this morning, he was exiled to an island, excommunicated. Thank you, y'all. It's going to be a rough morning. It's not going to be a rough morning. I'm not speaking that one. Um, excommunicated, discommunicated, excommunicated from his community and, and all those who knew him and loved him and supported him. And what we see is 10 of the 12 disciples were, uh, were martyred for their faith. John was exiled, and then Judas um, was, well, he, Judas kind of took his own life. Um, but but he, he had some hard times there um, after he betrayed Jesus. Yeah, he had some hard times after he, he betrayed his Savior. 
Um, but, but what we see in the, in, the, in the gospel is that what Jesus says to them begins to play out and it, and it plays out as, as true, right? They're going to put you out the synagogue. They're going to kill you. They're going to think they're offering service to God. In fact, what he's teaching them is that there's this uh, aggressive, if you will, violent antagonism that you're going to experience as a result of your faith. And their stories prove that to be true. And In fact, I was reading some other stories. Some of them were boiled in oil. Some of them were tied to crosses so they would die there slowly, uh, at least uh, slower than they would if they were nailed to a cross. So when you read the stories of these 12, here's the thing that happened, right? All of them had an opportunity um, to save their own lives by renouncing and walking away from their faith in Jesus Christ. So they could have said, all right, guys, I don't believe. And they could have said, their friends, well, I really believe in my heart. But they could say publicly, well, I don't believe. And, and, and they could have saved their lives. They could have gone on living. But what they understood was to abandon their faith was, was worse than to, to uh, uh, reject their faith, even just publicly with their words, because what they understood was that, the, that um, faith in Jesus Christ was so consuming um, that it was impossible. It was impossible to have belief and faith in your heart that wasn't flowing out of your mouth, flowing out of your hands, that wasn't controlling the places that your feet would take you and the things you would engage in. And so all of them, they refused to renounce their faith and walk away from it. And they were tortured for their faith. They experienced hardship for their faith. And whenever I read these stories, I'm going because we, we kind of live in a, a, a comfortable faith environment, if you will. Right? None of us uh, risk by saying, I believe um, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I accept him as my personal Lord and Savior. None of us risk being hung on a cross. right? That's, that's just not a risk. right? None of us risk um, being boiled in a, in a pot of a pot of a boiling oil. Like, that, that's just not a risk for us. None of us risk these different things that the disciples went through as a result of their faith. And so whenever I, I read passages like this where Jesus says, the world is going to hate you, I slow down and I ask, and really the, the core of this question is, uh, uh, what, the question is how, how, could, how would my faith weather that kind of aggressive antagonism that the disciples faith faced in their day. Um, but ultimately, the question is, um, is my identity fully hidden in Christ? Or is my identity fully placed in Christ? Because what the disciples do is they model for us what it looks like to have our identity, all that I am, right? My whole being being placed in Christ. Because if my whole being, my whole identity, what, what it means for me to be a human being is fully in Christ, then to have uh, Christ removed or to renounce my faith is worse than death itself, right? And so, yeah, they could have gone on living and renounced their faith, but that would have been worse than death itself. And so what, what I imagine happened in the disciples' life, and the Bible doesn't totally explain um, each one's um, discipleship process, like how they became to be, how they came to be a believer and how their faith in their, their, faith, how faith in their lives became more significant and their faith deepened. The Bible doesn't really tell us that. But what, what I would imagine is that over the course of the three years that they walked with Jesus and sat and listened to him teach, um, that their faith deepened to a point 
in, in other words, I imagine if they would have asked, like on day one when Jesus said, come and follow me and be my disciple, if somebody would have been like, oh, I'm going to kill you for being his disciple, I imagine Matthew would have been like, I'm out of here, right? It wasn't worth that. But, but as he walked with the Lord over the course of time, as he listened to him teach, as he saw the miracles he performed, as he came to believe and trust him even more fully as Lord, as his identity, what it meant for him to be a human, became more fully rested in Christ Jesus as his Lord and Savior, then the ideal of turning and walking away wasn't even a thought that would have crossed his mind because that would have been worse than death. Itself, And so I, I, I kind of think about in my own life, what does it look like for me, for my identity to be placed in Christ, but then also to, be, um, to move more deeply into Christ such that, um, such that if, 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 it, if it came to that moment for me in my life where I had to hold on to my faith and potentially lose my physical life as a result of that, what what, what would my response be? Like, how would, I, how, would I, how would I act in that moment? And, and I think this passage is challenging us in this area. It, it's challenging us in an area where it's comfortable to be a Christian in our society, and it's fairly comfortable, comparatively at least, to the disciples for us to come to church and to read the scriptures, and even to share the gospel with friends and neighbors and co-workers is fairly comfortable and easy for us to do that. In this world, we have to seriously consider the steps that we take to deepen our faith in Jesus Christ so that we can have the kind of faith that we see that Jesus expected from his disciples. Because he says to them, um, like, I just imagine if this was, would have been me, I would have, like, when I said the world is going to hate you, I probably would have, like, this, this is maybe too telling about me, but I probably would have, like, closed my eyes and put my head down, and I would have been like, God, please don't let them leave. Please don't let them walk away. Please, please let me open my eyes and the disciples still be there. But, but Jesus fully trusted in the work of God in their lives that he knew that he could say, the world is going to hate you and they would continue walking with him onto the cross. And so here he is, and he says this, and, and that's the kind of faith that he saw. And then now for us, I think we have to understand, uh, to, in order to understand and apply the scripture to our life, we got to ask that question, like, who is the world? Like, what is Jesus talking about when he says the world will hate you? Who is, who is this world? Because he doesn't say, like, uh, he doesn't make it specific. He doesn't say, you know, for the disciples, Herod Agrippa is going to, going to hate you, or he doesn't say your unbelieving neighbor is going to, to hate you, or your job is not going to like the fact that you're a Christian. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't say that. He says the world is going to hate you. Uh, and so who is this world that he's talking about? Now, the word that he uses in this passage for world is the word cosmos in, in the Greek. Uh, the New Testament is written in Greek. Old Testament, New Testament is primarily written in Greek, and the Old Testament is written in, in Hebrew. And so the word that he uses here in, in Greek is this word cosmos. We get, like, cosmology from it, uh, the study of the origins and development of the universe. Uh, so we, we, um, we, we, get, we, get, yeah, we get cosmology, this whole study of the universe, which, you know, has, um, at least in our society, the way the discussions have been playing out has kind of two sides that are sometimes viewed as being in conflict um, the way science tells us, like, cosmology happened and the universe developed, and the way the, ch the church 
church sees it. But, but what we see, and I, and I think what the two can agree on as we get to the root of this word, is that cosmology or, or cosmos re- really means an a, a ordered system or, or something that's been ordered, that's been placed in order. And I think, I think both, um, both, both, uh, both the furthest uh, scientists, furthest extreme of, of science and the furthest extreme of Christianity, maybe I shouldn't say furthest extreme, there's some wacky stuff out there at the extremes. Um, but uh, but th- those, at those extremes, we, I think we can both agree that the universe is an ordered system, right? We can both agree that you change some things just a little bit, even in the human body, that everything goes uh, berserk, right? You change some things in the distance the earth is from the sun, right? We burn up or we freeze. Uh, so I think, I think both extremes can agree that the universe is an ordered system. That in some degree, to some way, it's been ordered. Now, theologically, though, um, the universe is viewed as a divinely ordered system. And so when the Bible uses this word cosmos, they're attributing that to God. They're saying God divinely ordered this system. In fact, if you look at Genesis 1 verse 31, where it talks about God at the end of creation. I think we have that passage. And it says, um, yeah, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, and the sixth day. I, I, the thing I love about that passage, um, because God isn't going, or, uh, isn't going he's, not, um, he, he's not looking at creation and going, that flower is pretty. I, I did that, right? He's not going, man, that, he's, he's, not just, he's just not just admiring his work. But he's seeing all the detailed and intricate systems of this world. And he's seeing that they all are working together for the good of this world. So he's seeing the sun rising and the sun setting. He's seeing the temperature changing and the seasons coming and going. He's seeing the flowers bloom only to drop their seeds and see more flowers bloom. He's seeing the uh, insect providing food for the bird and the bird providing food for whatever eats birds, cats. Uh, and he's seeing like, he's seeing this whole food chain at, at, at work. He's seeing all this playing out, right? And, he, and he's saying it's good because the systems of this world are finely ordered so that this place is sustainable and it will last. And, and my hand is going to be with it and I'm going to ensure um, the survival of these people. So he looks back over all that he created and, and, and he says that it's good, and that's the cosmos. That's this divinely ordered system of this world that the Bible talks about. Now, when we get into the Gospel of John, and this is important for understanding what John is talking about here, um, John refers to the cosmos, the world, as a divinely ordered system in active rebellion against God. As a divinely ordered system in active rebellion rebellion against God. And so he begins with his idea that God created. So God created this. God created everything. In fact, if you go back to John chapter 1, um, the, the very beginning, if y'all can remember that far back, it's been a minute, right? It was in January. But John chapter 1, where we started, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, he says, came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing has Uh, nothing came into being that has come into being. So he says, um, the word is Jesus here. Uh, You can check out verse 14 of John chapter 1 where he says, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us, uh, to get your clues that the word that he's talking about here is Jesus. So he says, everything came into being through Jesus. This world, this universe that we live in was divinely ordered by Jesus. 
But then what John does in his gospel and, and how it plays out is he points to us how um, using the word darkness most of the time, how this world has now rebelled against God who ultimately is light. So there's this, this imagery of darkness and light that John likes to kind of play with in his gospel. Uh, and, and he shows that, um, that the world now is not characterized by God's light, but now it's characterized by darkness. Look, look quickly, we'll, we'll move through some of these. In John chapter 1, um, I, I'll, pick up, uh, I'll pick up in verse Hopefully it doesn't throw the slide guy off. Uh, in him was life, and the life was light. It was the light of men. Verse 5, and the light shines in darkness, and darkness did not understand it or could not comprehend it. So he's already showing us at the beginning that the world chose darkness over God's light. So it was divinely ordered uh, according to the light of God. In the beginning, God spoke, let there be light. Um, but the world rejects God's light and chooses darkness he's showing because it's the divinely ordered system an act of rebellion against God if you look over in John chapter 3 verse and uh, verse 19 look at what it says this is the judgment light has come into the world he's talking about Jesus uh, and men love darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil so again he's showing this difference between light and darkness divinely ordered but the world is choosing darkness over light if you flip over even a little bit further in john chapter uh john chapter 8 verse 12 look listen to what it says then jesus spoke to them saying i am the light of the world he who follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life and if you flip over just one more time john chapter 12 verse 46 listen to what it says there um it says, uh, uh, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes me will not remain in darkness. You see, what Jesus is showing us is this world was a divinely ordered system, right? That it, the systems of this world were ordered by God at the beginning. But at some point, somehow, um, not just at some point, with Cain and Abel, the world began to reject God's, not Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, they were the first two, right? Who were the first two humans? Uh, with Adam and Eve, uh, with Adam and Eve, the world began to reject God's light. And as it rejected God's light, it became, uh, it strayed further and further from the will and way and goodness of God that God had created us to enjoy. And as it strayed away from that, um, the Bible begins to use words like broken. Theologically, we use words like distortion. It became a distortion of what God intended for this world. The world was not what it was supposed to be. The word fall is sometimes used to describe what's happening here. The world has fallen from what God intended it to be. And what Jesus is offering to his disciples by this kind of juxtaposition of light and darkness, he's saying there's escape from the cosmos, this world that's living in active rebellion against God, this divinely ordered system that's now actively rebelling against God. There's escape from that. But here's the, here's the difference, um, or what, what at least what he says is, is this escape isn't necessarily at this moment physical escape. Rather, it's escape from being the world. Right? He, he's saying you can live in this world and no longer be the world. Right? You, can, you can be in this world and no longer be 
this divinely ordered system living in active rebellion against God, right? You can be in this world and live out a different story for your life is what he's teaching his disciples here. Uh, when he talks about this world is going to hate you, he's going to show them that, that our dominant culture is shaped primarily by the world, this act of rebellion against God. And so the values in our society, the morals in our society, the ethics in our society, the things that we, um, that we often will pick up just by living in this world as our own morals, values, and ethics are shaped by the cosmos, this rebellion against God. And so what Jesus wants us to see, and I think even the primary reason why John records this conversation that Jesus is having, is because he wants the disciples to see that you're going like, to have to stay in this world. You're going to live fully in this world, but you can't receive your cues from our culture, right? You can't determine what's right and wrong for your life by what our culture is going to teach you is right and wrong. You can't determine what's good or bad according to what our culture is going to teach you. Rather, he's saying you have Christ to show you the way, right? Your cues don't come from culture. They come from Christ just because it's popular, right? I think is, is uh, what John is teaching us. Just because it's popular and accepted and, and it's good in our society doesn't mean it's proper for followers of Jesus Christ. You see, what Jesus is challenging his disciples to do is to embrace this counter-cultural life, this life that doesn't gain its cues from its culture, but is counter-cultural uh, and, and um, is ultimately following Christ. And what we begin to see in this gospel, which is so, I think, rich for us, particularly in the day that we're living in, is that uh, this countercultural life that Christ is calling us to is, is fundamentally subversive. It, it's, um, it's not about being a separatist or, or a subculture that disconnects from, from a dominant culture, from our, disconnects from the world, and we kind of huddle up in our little Christian bubbles and do our little Christian thing and talk about how bad the world is and how the world is, you know, um, just getting worse and worse, right? It, it's not for us to be these separatists who, like, that separate from the world and, and, and do our own little thing and, and, and just feel bad for them because they just don't know Jesus. But, but it's also not, not for us to be these antagonists, right? These people who are constantly railing against the world for their sin. And they're just so awful and the world's just becoming such a bad place. Uh, and, 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 uh, and, and I just don't understand how people can live with Jesus. You need Jesus. It's not for us to stand on the corner with signs saying, uh, turn or burn, those kinds of things, right? He's not saying that we're antagonists of our culture, but rather it's this fundamentally subversive, which means that we live uh, within, fully within our culture, but we live according to Christ and for the common good of our world. So that's what he's calling us to, right? This countercultural life is about living within our culture, right? Fully, not separating from it because it's so evil, right? But living fully within it, but according to Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit, and Holy Spirit's coming back, I think it's next week uh, in, in the passage. Jesus is going to bring Holy Spirit back, so it's coming. Uh, uh, according to the power of the Holy Spirit, but for the good of the world. And that's what we see modeled in Jesus Christ, right? That he lived fully within a culture according to God's will. And what John wants us to see 
um, is that when we do that, that we can expect in our lives resistance, um, we can expect rejection, and we can expect risk in our lives in many different forms. In fact, some of, the, um, some of the strongest resistance that we'll have to following Jesus Christ into our own faith uh, comes from within. At least this has been my story, right? I, I think it's because we're people that are soaked in a culture that teaches us um, 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 certain values and ways of doing and being that when Christ calls us to, um, to go and do or be um, whatever it is that Christ is calling us to be, sometimes there's this internal resistance. It's like, that's, like that's, not the, that's not the value system I've been raised with, right? Sometimes we experience that uh, the, the, uh, what Christ calls us to, to do goes against our own internal uh, value system, our own internal sense of right and wrongs because we've been, like, we've been soaking here in this culture. We live here in this world, and we're, we're influenced by it. And so what, what he's showing his disciples is sometimes there's this resistance. It may be internally. It may be externally. There may be even rejection for following Christ. There may be some people who don't want to be around you because you don't do uh, the fun things. Uh, or, or there may be, uh, there may even be risk for following Christ. It may be a chance that you lose some things by your yes to Christ things that are um, valuable uh, to you, you may lose. And what John wants us to see is that our faith doesn't shy away from that because Christ has called us to embrace these countercultural lives that ultimately are going different, a different direction. It's almost like going against the current, a different direction than the world. And I, I personally think, or the, the scriptures think, not just I personally, but the scriptures they don't suggest, they strongly say um, that, yeah, this going against the current here, right, of this world is terribly difficult. So walking with Christ is not going to be a walk in the park, right? You need, as Paul was telling us, you need your community to walk alongside you, people that you're going to get strength from, but you're going in a different direction that ultimately is going to end up with a different end, right? It's going to end at a different uh, destination because we can't go the same way. Like the the church cannot be um, the world's church-going equivalent, right? We can't be like, uh, the, the only thing making us different can't be the, different, be the fact that we get up on Sunday morning and come to church, right? That's just not, like, like that doesn't really, like, that doesn't really lead to a different place. Like, that, that's not going in a different direction. That's like going in the same direction except, like, singing songs on Sunday morning and gathering. Like, we can't be the world's church-going equivalent, right? That God is calling us to be, to be different, to live out these different stories, Like, like, I almost feel like Jesus would have been like, don't be alarmed if your life in this world doesn't feel fair. Like, if you're, if you're going, but, but he got to tell her off and tell her what he really thought about her, right? After she 
I don't know what people do, key your car. Somebody keyed your car. Hopefully nobody's in here getting their car key. Man, that was, man, that was, man, that was a prayer of mine as I was a kid, especially when I was in a dating world. Like, you would break up with a girl. I'm like, man, please don't let this girl key my car. I'm glad it was one of the best things about getting married. I'll have that fear of getting my car key. Um, it happens. It happens. I'm sure you, there's some stories. Um, sorry, that was my squirrel brain. Um, I think Jesus would say to us, though, it's not, it's not fair that I can't, can't retaliate. It's not fair that I have to live generously. It's not, it's not going to feel fair, right? Um, and, and he's challenging us to push back against that feeling that we will have in this world that it's not fair. And to push back against it with the word of God. And trust and faith and faith that has now moved to the core of our identity, the center of our lives. A faith that is now our only hope in this world. Such that we, we press through those feelings of it's not fair. And we follow Christ till the very end. Just like the disciples did going to the cross to be hung upside down, going, this isn't fair, like I did the right thing, right? Seeing the water boiling and knowing in moments they're going to dip me in that and me going, it's not fair. I lived in this world according to Christ for the good of the world. The world was blessed by my life. I did this for the good of the world. It's, it's not fair that I'm going, I'm going, seeing the guys picking and collecting the stones that they're going to stone you with, the, the disciples I'm speaking of, and going, it is not fair. Like, I did the right thing. I did the good thing. It, it, this isn't fair. But the Bible is showing us is that it's not going to feel fair, but it's worth it pushing through to the end in living out these countercultural realities where we live fully in this world, but according to Christ, so that we can be that light. In Matthew chapter 5, he talks about the, the church's salt and light, adding flavor to this world and being a light that's intended to be seen by the world. And here's the, here's the hard part about this. Um, Jesus is teaching the disciples the world is going to hate you. You're going to face uh, resistance, rejection, and risk for following Jesus. And then Jesus expects us to continue living out his love for the world. And so we are to love the world even through that. It's like if you ever wondered if the teachings of Jesus were countercultural, here's a sign. In fact, if you remember that scripture, uh, if you remember that scripture, one of the more popular scriptures in the Bible, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, right? God loved the world that he gave his son to the world, that the world could hang him on a cross 
so that he could save that world from its sins. Or in the other Gospels, what we read about is when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he says the words, Father, forgive them, right? This is the guy that, like, like he's looking at the people that nailed him to the cross, um, surely feeling that, that weight. This is not fair. But yet saying, Father, forgive. He loved the world to the very end because that's the only way that we can fully live into God's plan for our lives. And so it's not for us to say, this is so hard following Jesus Christ. It's just not fair that I can't do this or I have to respond in this way. But it's rather to recognize and joyfully live out these countercultural realities, right? This following Jesus Christ, this countercultural life that he's calling us to, joyfully living it out because we know that we are making a real difference and that we're following in the way of Jesus Christ. And we know where that story ends. And that brings me joy. Hopefully that brings you joy and strength. If you're here this morning, and maybe you've never accepted the story of Jesus Christ to be true for your life, um, or, or maybe you have and you walked away from that story and thought maybe it's just an uh, invalid story, like a story that just didn't work, uh, maybe the pressure got turned up uh, in life as it does sometimes, I want to challenge you to make today the day that you accept the story of Jesus as true for your life. God's one and only Son came to earth, was born like a man, felt emotions, experienced temptation that we experience. He fought through the voice in his head and in his heart saying, turn away because they're going to nail you to a cross. He went to that cross for our sin. The punishment that we deserve was laid upon his shoulders. His back took the stripes, the Bible says, those are whips, right, that we deserved for our wrongdoing. The world, the world saw him die. They buried him in a tomb. They rolled a stone over the door so that no man would open it and steal his body. They put guards at the door. But the power of God rolled that stone away and Jesus rose from the dead. He walked again with his disciples. He shared a meal again with his disciples. He stood with them and told them the Holy Spirit is going to come on you and you're going to be uh, my witnesses. You're going to travel boldly all over the whole world. Tri-Cities Church is partly a result of disciples traveling all over the world to the ends of the earth. Jesus ascended into heaven where he's fully in the presence of God. Every one of his needs are met. Temptation exists no more. 
those emotions like anger and sadness, sorrow, depression are no longer a part of his reality. He's made fully whole. And the Bible's inviting us to join that story, which requires us here to carry our cross, to go a different direction. And that's the story that I'm accepting. I'm challenging you today to accept. I'm going to be back there at the Next Steps table uh, as we share in communion. And Kim will be back there with me as we share in communion and sing together. And I want to challenge you that if you've never accepted that story to be true, or if you need to accept that story anew (laughs) to make today the day, let's pray. God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that we get to gather in places like this without fear of persecution, without fear of losing our lives, without fear, the fear that the disciples faced. And we can boldly declare our faith in you. And we can walk out of these doors and we can live countercultural lives, lives that tell a different story. And God, I just pray that you will be our boldness that you will be our courage to know that as we do that, and even as we face hard times doing that, that it is well with our souls because we're part of a different story that ends a different way. And I'm thankful, God, that we get to break bread together, not just or not celebrating a dead man, but celebrating our Lord and Savior who rose from the dead and who is alive, a man about whom the disciples told his story. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.